Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whited and my guest today is Rob Copeland, Director of the Advanced Wellbeing Research Centre and Professor of Physical Activity and Health at Sheffield Hallam University. You can find him on Twitter at drrobcopeland. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. How did your day start? A uh, 20 mile cycle ride, perhaps? 50 lengths of the yeah. pool? Yeah, well, certainly the cycle ride um, would be more attractive to me. I, uh, I do cycle to work. That's kind of a core part of what I do. But the day typically starts with getting the dog up and out, supporting the kids in the Ferrari of their morning activity on the way to school. They're 16 and 14 now, so typically it's me getting out of their way, maybe scrambling for a little bit of attention from them before our days start. And then uh, catching up and making sure that I'm on message with, uh, with my wife, Katie, and uh, all the plans that we, we, we have for, for the evening when I, when I, when I get back. Uh, just returning to the cycle to work, you know, I do enjoy cycling and I, I cycle outside of work. But for me, a day uh, with a commute on bike is, is a good day um, in terms of a start. It's, it's cheap, it's easy, it's a good way to get around the city. I find it the quickest way to get around around Sheffield. And it, it kind of gives you time to, to think and to plan and to just prepare yourself for, for the morning. So the day will, if it's going to be a good day, we'll, we'll start with a, with a bike ride for me. And just before this podcast, you were hosting the chief executive of the British Olympic Association. Right. How was that? Yeah, fantastic. So they've had a change in leadership. Andy Anson has, has come in and um, he, uh, he's also a keen cyclist, which I, I didn't know, but we found a mutual interest there. And, and that was all about really this, I think, growth in legacy that's been led uh, in Sheffield by some of the work that I've been doing, but colleagues across the city from London 2012. And um, perhaps we can talk about that a little bit later on if we get a chance, but this is very much... Um, Sheffield leading the way on uh, post-London 2012 games, creating an Olympic legacy that um, supports the population to uh, to be more physically active. And whilst we're doing lots of exciting things with technology and digital and medtech innovations at the Advanced Wellbeing Research Centre, the heart of it is about getting people to be more active. So I've had one professor on the show before, Professor Michael West, who is a professor of work and organisational psychology. Yeah. You're a professor in physical activity and health. How do you become one of those? Yes, yeah. yeah, good question. My uh, my pals from back home say you just need to be really good at jogging or or something like that. Now, I mean, I started as um, uh, an undergraduate in uh, sport and exercise science, actually up in the northeast. Um, I then went to the University of Sheffield um, to do a, a master's degree in um, sport and exercise um, science, and then started the kind of process of looking for a job and. I actually worked for a company called The Book People for a, for a couple of um, uh, months where I'd drive a white van around Stoke-on-Trent, which is where I grew up, um, handing out books. And the closest I got to health and well-being was handing out the books in the local hospital, you know. And then I, uh, I saw a job in, uh, in Mansfield District Council, a community health and fitness officer. And uh, I'd never, to be honest, I'd never really heard of Mansfield. You know, it's kind of... Uh, I've heard of it now, but um, back then it was uh, it was unknown to me. And, and I went, and, and long story short, got the job. And I spent two fantastic years there working with the sport development team, 
developing programs that supported people with chronic health conditions into physical activity, particularly around exercise, referral programs and cardiac rehabilitation. And that really, for me, laid the groundwork to what then became an academic career. I moved to um, Sheffield Hallam University to undertake a PhD. That was in, uh, in psychology and childhood obesity. And then over the last uh, 18 years, I've worked on close to 100 different programs and projects supporting people into a healthier lifestyle, either through creating systems or structures that make it easier for them to be um, healthier or by working with them at an individual level through um, counselling or behaviour change. And over that time, I've progressed from a, a PhD student right through the academic career structure into recently being invited to be uh, uh, become a professor. Never something that I thought I would do, never on the kind of wish list. And um, in fact, I declined the invitation and, uh, at first because I just didn't feel like a, like a professor. But I feel incredibly fortunate to have had the support to end up, yeah, being a, a professor of jogging, as my mates would say. Can you tell us more about the uh, Advanced Wellbeing Research Centre? How did that come about? Sure. Um, so there's a history to this that, uh, as, as I mentioned, goes back to uh, the London 2012 Games in terms of the health side of it. But even before then, one of my colleagues, Professor Steve Hake, was um, instrumental in uh, the AWRC, had a heritage in, in a project called Sports Pulse, which was about how can academia and the work that we do in elite sport, particularly sports engineering, support local companies to advance their technologies and to um, make a contribution to GDP and, and, and jobs in the economy. So that, that was bubbling away with under the Sports Pulse brand. And then um, London 2012 came along. Sheffield was awarded foundation partner status in something called the um, National Centre for Sport and Exercise Medicine. And this was one of the promises from the, 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 the London legacy. And we received £10 million of investment from the Department of Health, as it was then. And we chose to establish um, a citywide partnership with representation from every element of civic life, led by Sir Andrew Cash and Sheffield Teaching Hospitals, but including the CCG and the council and the leisure sector and the voluntary sector and the academic community. And we used our £10 million to co-locate NHS clinics, essentially hospital clinics, with leisure centres. And we now are in 80,000 clinical appointments in three leisure centres in, in Sheffield. And we talk about it very matter-of-fact in Sheffield. It's like kind of a normal thing to do. It makes sense. And the philosophy, if I may just go off at a tangent slightly, the philosophy behind that was to say, how do we create environments that make a conversation about activity make sense? If you're a consultant in a hospital and I come to you for an appointment, it's very clear who's in control. It's very clear what the dialogue is about. You're here to fix me. Mm. And the environment reinforces that with all the medical devices and everything that we see around. And, and we thought, well, how might we change that conversation? Moving clinics from a hospital environment, stroke clinics or diabetes clinics, musculoskeletal clinics, into a leisure centre immediately changes the relationship that the patient and also the clinician has with activity as a, a treatment option. It becomes more of a partnership. It becomes more of a partnership and you see people like you being active, um, that reinforces the social element of behaviour, which is really important. And so we, we kind of, we, we worked on that, and then that became part of a much bigger programme called Move More, which was Sheffield's um, physical activity strategy. And collectively, the National Centre for Sport and Exercise Medicine had this ambition to transform Sheffield into the most active city in the UK. 
and it was my job to lead that project. And one of the first appointments that we made was as, as a research director was to ask Steve Hake to uh, to join us as the research director. So Steve um, from the technology, the, he's a sports engineer by background, joined us as a research director, partnered with myself as the director of the National Centre. And out of that came this, this vision for a research centre that focused specifically on how might we translate and support industry in the private sector to develop innovations that help people move. And then we translate those into the NHS, into the local authority, into social care. We create jobs, we support the local business to enhance um, GDP, and we take the IP and we commercialise it nationally and then internationally. And my side leading the health side, Steve's side leading the, the technology, and, and that then became what we have now is the Advanced Wellbeing Research Centre. And at its heart, its vision is about transforming lives through innovations that help people move. And, and, and our mission is the prevention and treatment of chronic disease. And, you know, that, that's very true and very close to my heart. Uh, you know, Mansfield as a, as a community where I started my working life, came out of the, um, the mining community. There was big inequality in there. And where we are located now in Darnell, that ward of 22,000 people, a neighbourhood of 9,000 people. There is huge inequality, health inequality. And so um, it's not just about the, when I talk about the vision of transforming lives through innovations that help people move, it isn't just a grand vision. It, it's got a very local contextual um, vision that's important to us as well. I suspect that in those three words that then became, there was a heck of a lot of hard work and applica <laughs> applications for grants and the like. Yeah. Would you like yeah. to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So we, uh, the funding for the building actually came from an application to the Department of Health and Social Care that it is now. And we received £14 million to actually build a capital uh, facility. And that was supported by a, um, a bid to the European um, Development Fund, Regional Development Fund, that, that, that supported us just on under a million pounds for the equipment. So we have some fantastic kind of investment from some big partners. But, you know, a, a building that's empty is no good to anybody. And so we, we have a, a significant programme of research, uh, research and innovation at the AWRC, and our research is coordinated around three themes. And the first of those themes is called uh, Healthy and Active 100. And that speaks to a vision of how might we create the conditions through our research so that if someone was born in Darnell today, they could expect to live 100 years of healthy, active life. So what might need to change around the social, the behavioural, the environmental conditions in that community, as well as the health care that they might receive so that they can experience those healthy 100 years. And again, it speaks to inequality. If you're born today in Donald, you can expect to get to the age of 50 in good health. If you're born in Fullwood, five miles up the road, you, ex you can get to the age of 68 mm. in good health. And that 18 to 20 year gap in healthy life expectancy is really what we need to close through our innovations. The second theme is about living well with chronic disease. And so we have um, a big um, recognition that physical activity is a treatment for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, neurological conditions like stroke can have a play a major role in supporting people into good function, but then into better health, uh, back into work, back into the contribution to, to the economy. And then the third theme is technological and digital innovations to promote independent lives. So how might we use our phones? How might we use our Internet of Things? How might we use digital devices and technologies to support people to self-manage their condition, to live independently, 
or to connect with one another more effectively so that we maintain our social connections. And that talks really to the heart of the 10-year plan, the NHS 10-year plan and self-management and uh, and such like. So there are kind of core research themes. And then we have um, a big programme of work around engagement with the private sector, particularly new startups and SMEs. And we have just um, over £850,000 from Research England, which was a, a grant led by uh, our Deputy Director, Dr Chris Lowe, which is to create a wellbeing accelerator where we can provide support packages connecting to our academics across the entire university because the AWRC acts as an incubator for academic expertise and I, I can mention a bit more about that shortly. And this wellbeing accelerator will work with startups and SMEs to take their concepts through to commercialization by working with our academic expertise. Terrific. Recently, I interviewed Tracy Allen, Chief Executive Derbyshire Community Health Services. She cited health coaching as an innovation within her primary care trust. And in her book, Radical Help, Hilary Cottam describes the work of Participle, now defunct, in supporting people to take responsibility for their well-being. To be remotely successful, you're going to have to tackle the 38% of the population who, according to the latest NHS report, average less than 15 minutes per day of vigorous activity. Yeah. What yeah. are your thoughts? Yeah, um, well, th- I think this is a really interesting area, actually, because I am wholly convinced by the power of people. I am convinced that people in all communities have assets and um, strengths and talents and drive, and and it's about how we can create the conditions so that people across all communities can thrive and um, and for them to realise their, their potential. And health coaching is certainly one way to do that. But we have to be really careful here in this narrative that um, this doesn't shift towards a conversation about blame, a conversation about responsibility and a conversation about attribution because the... Um, the social, the environmental, the economic conditions are not the same across all communities. And therefore, it's about ensuring that we put the power in the hands of the right people without blaming them for the conditions that they find themselves in. And so um, absolutely there is a need to be able to provide the right support at the right time through the right channels to people to um, realise their potential. And... um, considering the shift of what has typically been a health treatment-focused paradigm to dealing with these the wider social determinants of health has to be part of that conversation when we're talking about personal responsibility. And so, you know, if we think about um, the report from the, the King's Fund about what makes up our health, you know, in the best-case scenario, 30 to 35% of our health is about our health care. So we have to be thinking much broadly about the the social and economic conditions that we create to be able to then support people through interventions like health um, health coaching and uh, and realizing the potential of people is 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 absolutely core to what we want to do at the AWRC that kind of co-production of innovations and interventions is absolutely where we need to go because ultimately if we're designing innovations for people Surely we should be asking the people that we are expecting to use these innovations to be a core part of the design process. And we don't. We often turn up with something that's ready-made, going, do you want that in blue or yellow? That's not co-production. That's not participatory research in its truest form. And so we have to challenge ourselves about how we deliver our research just in the same way that 
we need to challenge and support individuals to think about what might they may be able to do to to support their own health. That's a great answer. And I, I love the idea that it's about empowerment and not blame. Yeah. So if you could take over from Matt Hancock, <laughs> Secretary <laughs> no, no of State chance. for Health and Social Care <laughs> no for a chance. year, what would your priorities be? Well, firstly, I would not absolutely, that's not, on the, that's not on the job plan. Let's just <laughs> say that. I mean, uh, the, the NHS is a, uh, an absolutely wonderful thing and we do some amazing work and, and you know, it, uh, the NHS works because of the people that are in it. And I think we, so therefore my first kind of uh, response would be, it has to, we have to think about workforce and how are we supporting our, our, our workforce in, and in ways that support their own health and well-being. Because um, a healthy workforce is a productive workforce, is a resilient workforce, is a happy workforce. And therefore, investment for me upstream and interventions that, that support the workforce of the NHS will be really important. And you'd expect me to talk about active travel and how we, we support them to, to move to and from work in, in an active way. But also how might we create active hospitals and the environments there to promote um, physical activity. So that would certainly be one of my, um, one of my priorities. And that speaks, I think, to something that is in the 10-year plan. It is something that uh, Matt Hancock's talked about, and that's prevention. But I can't point to one of the kind of marked programs around prevention in, in any meaningful way, and that suggests that we don't necessarily have them. We have some structures and, you know, the integrated care systems and the way that we're bringing together different partnerships to look at prevention is important. But that's quite structural. You know, I think we, we need some some more tangible programs around around prevention. And and I think those programs have to connect to the social prescribing agenda. And often social prescribing is seen as the easy, the quick fix, but it, it absolutely needs to be appropriately resourced. It needs to be supported and it needs to be given the investment so that it can be sustainable. If we're asking community organisations and community groups and the voluntary sector to make a contribution to upstream prevention activities, supporting people in their communities into better health and well-being, we have to find a way to to resource that appropriately. So um, that would be one of my other priorities. The continued coordination of services, particularly for older, frailer adults, as they require support from from multiple sectors. Um, we, we're doing some of that, but we, we would do more. Um, I think that would be one of my um one, one of my areas. And then finally, and we are working on this for the Sheffield City region, the idea that we can use physical activity and exercise as a structured form of physical activity to improve people's um, cardiorespiratory fitness or to support them through programs, um, enhance their nutrition or to be able to deal with anxiety in a range of clinical conditions such as cancer prior to their acute treatment means that we would enhance the quality and effectiveness of their acute treatment and their recovery from that acute treatment. Mm. And so for me, the, the sort of prehabilitation agenda, getting people fitter for surgery or for chemotherapy or radiotherapy in a cancer context, for example, would be one of my strong priorities if I had 12 months. <laughs> Thank you. The Advanced Wellbeing Research Centre is quite an achievement where do you go from here in terms of your career? Do you see yourself as, say, Professor Keith Ridgway building the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre for the next 20 years, or do you have other plans? I've not really been one for long-term career plans, to be honest, Chris. I, I've not sat down and mapped out my, my journey. I've gone where I feel 
called to go or I've gone where it, places that interest me and I have a real heart for Sheffield you know um, my kids grow up here I'm part of the fabric of the city and I've had opportunities to go elsewhere through my academic career but I've chosen to stay in in, in Sheffield and I certainly wouldn't create the comparison between the AWRC and the AMRC. Um, you know, Keith, Keith and his team at the University of, of Sheffield did a, an absolutely amazing job to kind of really put advanced manufacturing and Sheffield City region on, on the map globally. And they're to be applauded for that. It took them a long time to do it. And I mean that with all due respect, you know, we're talking 15 um, plus years to get them where we are. So... I think there's a, a bit of time, I hope, for the AWRC to, to advance. And, of course, health uh, and, and, and well-being is a completely different sector than advanced you know, manufacturing. We're 90% of the companies in medtech, for example, are SMEs. So we're working in a completely different, completely different space. But our ambition is as lofty. Mm. I think our skills within the region is as complementary and I believe that we have a significant role to play within the city region strategic economic plan with creating and articulating a vision about health and well-being is central to enhancing our economy and I believe that through a partnership between AMRC and the AWRC and that corridor of innovation we can make a significant contribution to the health and well-being of our population and so if you were to say to me, what's your career plan, Rob? I would say, well, it's to do some of that. Where yeah. that takes me, I don't know. But um, for now, I'm looking after the AWRC and I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. Who knows where, where I may end up after that. But that vision and that heart for supporting um, our communities into better health and well-being will, will certainly be at the centre of it. Hold on to that ambition, Rob. So you started out an academic and you've become a professor in now, I suppose you would see you've become an organisational leader as well. Mm. How's your thinking on leadership developed? When you suggested I, I come onto a uh, a podcast about leadership, I, my first response is, "What? What? You know, why, why do you want to talk to me about leadership?" Because I, I think I've never really thought almost, you know, explicitly about my leadership style or kind of how I even approach leadership, to be perfectly honest with you. And and so this idea that I might have a, a leadership philosophy is, is a challenge um, to me. And so I've reflected on this and, uh, you know, kind of how I might describe my, my philosophy. And I believe strongly, and it's probably come through quite clearly in this in discussion, is that I believe strongly in the power of harnessing people and their talents and assets. And I see uh, it as my job as a leader to make it really easy for my team or the teams that I interact with to do their job effectively. But more than that, to enable them to thrive, to excel and to surprise themselves in terms of what can be achieved when we do things together. And so I suppose I'm about trying to create the right culture that uh, my team can get their job done, but done in the right way. I have a, a really strong belief that I want to know my teams are really valued, both as people, but also as professionals, and that they're part of something exciting and impactful that goes beyond themselves or what they could do as an individual, because I think that will inspire them and, and really give them that sense of purpose. And therefore, how do you do that? Well, I think you do that as a leader by giving a clear sense of vision. This is the direction that we're going in, folks. 
outline that kind of the why. So why is this important? Not just a rational reason, but also a, a sense of um, heartfelt drive as to why this is important. And be really clear on not just what I want them to do, like deliver this plan over here or, you know, such like, but how do I want that to make them feel and how is this journey going to feel like uh, along the way? Because I think if you can get that sense of engagement emotionally as well as cognitively, you then have more than employees, you have people that are on a journey with you. And I think to epitomize a leader, and often it's um, seen in a sense of setting the direction, and that's true. But if a leader, you're off in one direction, you turn around and no one's following you, who are you leading? And therefore, for me, it has to be about that sense of, of harnessing the power of the people and bringing those um, those people with you. And as I've re- uh, reflected on it, I would sum it up in terms of four words, really, my style. It's about believing, belonging, behaving and becoming. And, and, and that articulates a, a sense of people believing in a vision and believing in something belonging to a community that gets that vision and and aspires to it. There are a set of behaviours that come with that about how we treat one another and about how we work together. And so ultimately we become the kind of the vision that we, that we had at the beginning. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that's part of it for me. I don't know if I've articulated that particularly clearly, but that's, that's how I feel about leadership. And in order to do that, I, I feel that we, um, we need to understand understand ourselves as as people and, and as leaders, and what our preferences are, and therefore where our, our strengths are, and where maybe our strengths are overplayed. A couple of my colleagues, Pete Lindsay and Mark Borden, have a, a program called Spotlight, which is part of their company Mindflick, and they talk about its strengths being overplayed, a strengths based view of leadership. So my preference is for people, and so naturally my strength overplayed might be an eye on making sure that everyone's okay rather than realigning people on what they might need to do. And, and, and when you're aware of that as a leader, it really helps to, to shape um, how you communicate and, um, and recognise where your uh, strengths are being overplayed. So that's probably how I would answer that question. Well, to say that you'd only put, you've only put that together recently, I think <laughs> it was beautifully articulated. It's one of the best leadership philosophies I've heard. Thank you. Excellent. What's the failure or mistake you've learned most from? <laughs> How long have we got? So, I mean, there's a few that have shaped my career, and, and, and one of them goes back to A-levels, actually. You know, your childhood really does shape and define so much of your future life experiences because of the, the powerful emotions that, that come with it at a time when you're developing the kind of structure of your brain and the, the, you know, the emotional process. And, you know, I had a, an experience with my A-level biology where I didn't read the exam question Propping for kids, if you're listening, make sure you 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 do this. And I, you know, I I answered two questions, and I should have answered three questions. And you know, and, and as a result, that shaped what I ended up doing through university. The you know the grades that I sh- um, were kind of projected didn't materialise. Ended up going through clearing, and so um, that that shaped my philosophy for a few years. So much so, actually, that uh, just to be open for a second, I'd, I'd done a my uh, sports science degree. I then did my master's degree. And then I actually went back to night school to do an A-level in biology. <laughs> and, um, and halfway through this, uh, this, A, this A-level in biology, I, I kind of had a, an epiphany. I was like, what are you doing? Why, why, why do you feel like you need to kind of justify yourself, Rob, in this, in this kind of way? It's, this is ridiculous. So I, I did what I think is probably the brave thing and I stopped and, uh, you know, withdrew from the course. 
And I reflected on actually what was driving this. And this was kind of a sense of acceptance and this notion that, um, you know, I wasn't valued unless I'd kind of somehow managed to overcome this. And so beyond that, I, I chose that I would use that as a, a vehicle for growth rather than restricting me, really. And so, you know, we won't get things right uh, in life and in, in, in our career. But it's what we it's what we do with those things that is really, really important. And, uh, you know, I have had other, other examples. So I, I remember a, um, a scenario, the details of which are probably not important, where I fired off a, an emotional email to HR about a response to a, um, a detail and got an email back from my boss at the time saying, that's not going to land well. And uh, and so, so, you know, just learning to get a sense of perspective with the kind of asking yourself, how am I going to feel about this in 10 seconds, in 10 minutes, in 10 weeks and in 10 months is something that I've learned as a, you know, as a leader that we, we also need to do. So there's been a few, few of those. Yeah. Is there a particular experience or person that you found inspirational during your career? Uh, dozens. I mean, I, I've been very fortunate in my uh, career. I've had some incredible support from people uh, both within the university and also outside it. When I started the national center for sport and exercise medicine, it was with, um, under the, and under the leadership of um, David Whitney, who was the uh, one of the previous chief execs around the uh, hospital trust, and I was able to work with um, senior leaders like Sir Andrew Cash and John Mothersall and Professor Sue Morrison. You know, some fantastic kind of thinkers and leaders in both the health and the public sector. My uh, relationship with uh, Dr. Ollie Hart in the uh, in the city, who's a GP, we together kind of, um, I guess, drove the vision for Move More, our, our citywide strategy and around systems. And just one of his big passions is health coaching and person-centered care. And so just being inspired by him and the way that he he thinks is uh, it's been has been really uh, really valuable. But um, there's there's so many, and and that's just in my work environment. You know, outside of that. You know, my family and my wife's a huge inspiration, the way that she is just able to calmly deal with scenarios and situations and, and uh, is, is inspiring all the time. And I'm a big cyclist, you know, I love cycling. Um, I have to be reminded by people that I don't get paid to go cycling. But um, there are so many um, leaders within that, um, within that world that, you know, are inspirational, not just your typical ones like, you know, your Dave Brailsford, who are obviously created a culture around marginal gains and looking for their 1%, but um, particularly some of the pioneers in the, you know, sort of the female cycling world, Lizzie Armistead's how she's driving change through that community, really quite inspiring. I joked at the beginning of the show about uh, your self-care regime, <laughs> but are there other aspects to it apart from cycling? Yeah, there are. So... Time with family is really, really important. Not just my immediate family, but um, I've, I'm very fortunate. I have a good relationship with my parents and um, my, uh, my my sister. Um, I enjoy spending time with her. My, um, my um, extended family uh, on my wife's side, I love spending time with, with them too. And we've just had a new addition to the family. My brother-in-law and his wife have given birth to a um, a baby daughter. And, and, and that's part of the rich tapestry, isn't it? It helps you to get that sense of perspective. I uh, I try and take time out to reflect, but that often happens along a bike ride. Um, and I have a faith, you know, I go to uh, St. Thomas's Church in Philadelphia. And so um, that's a core uh, part of, um, of shaping who I am and is central to the way that I uh, I see the world, really. 
And is there a book, podcast or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? I feel like I should answer this question, but th- 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 I mean, there isn't um, really. I mean, obviously, the compassionate leadership, I'm sure, is going to be fantastic. I'd point everyone in that direction, Chris. I'm reading a really interesting book at the moment that was actually given to me by uh, a friend several years ago who's now a, a pastor of a church, actually, around kind of... Um, uh, the elephant and the uh, and the rabbit and it's about how you kind of uh, it's to do with church planting actually but actually it's more of a story about how you create community and the the story about the elephant and the rabbit it relates to the fact that if you put two elephants in a room and wait three years you'll get one elephant if you put two rabbits in a room and wait three years you get millions of rabbits and so it's really about how you create those communities and what are you looking to do are you looking to create huge great organizations and structures that are elephant size and you may only get one of them or actually are you looking to look at things that are much more agile and uh, and therefore if you do that and you grow things and uh, organically and spin them off really quickly you can create lots of uh, movements much more quickly and um, and so that philosophy between big organizations and small structures is uh, really influenced how I've thought about growth and how I've thought about the the shape of the leadership of the AWRC, for example, we have a very small central infrastructure, which means we're able to grow really quickly. Um, And we then utilize expertise from across the university. But those academics stay in their departments, they come into the AWRC to work on programs and projects. So I'm not creating a huge beast here, a big elephant in three years, I'm creating A a million rabbits, maybe, yeah. And what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? <laughs> Read the exam question. Um, probably, well, we have probably have already done it by then. Don't, re- um, don't retake your biology. Don't retake your biology, yeah. Um, find something you enjoy. Treat people with uh, dignity and, and, and respect, always. Absolutely ride bikes. That would be the thing that um, I would encourage anyone to do. It's cheap, it's there. easy, it's fun, and uh, it gets you to... Uh, Places that um, uh, are just good for the soul, really. So some of those sorts of things, really. So could we come full circle and talk about the legacy for London 2012? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So London 2012 was awarded with the uh, aspiration to inspire a generation to be more physically active. And um, everything that we have done here in Sheffield around the National Centre for Sport and Exercise Medicine has been to harness that that vision. And so we've created policies and programmes under Move More that try and create the conditions so that it's easier for people to be physically active. We are working with partners in the city region and Sheffield City Council to try and make the infrastructure easier to move around our towns and cities through walking and cycling. Because I believe that a uh, an active um, population is an economically vibrant population. An economically vibrant population will help to close the health inequality gap as we are able to shift wealth in uh, more equitably across our, our city. And I believe that um, the power of sport can harness hearts and minds in these communities, can drive up aspiration, and in the right conditions with the power given over to the right people, um, I think we can achieve some fantastic things. And, and and for me, that would be the legacy of London 2012, to see a reduction in health inequality in our city, to see Sheffield become the most active population. And through that, I think we would become one of the healthiest and wealthiest cities on the planet. And that would be a wonderful place to uh, 
to bring up my kids and, uh, and and to live and to work. That's a beautiful way, I think, to end the podcast, Rob. Uh, it ties in your vision for the city with your vision for health and well-being. And um, I've really enjoyed listening to you today. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be on. Thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, on Amazon. This episode was recorded at Rebel Base Media in Sheffield, and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. Mm-hmm.